hello and welcome to series two, episode eight of To The Studio. This week, we have Takmina Negmar as our guest. Takmina is currently on a year-long residency at the Carpenter's Wharf Studios in Hackney Wick and making paintings about Joe Exotic from Tiger King in her quarantine flat in Moscow. She treats her studio as a spectacle arena where she wants to throw a real celebration for the anti-hero, the trickster. A demonic comic double of a cultural hero, endowed with the features of a naughty dodger. For her, the trickster is the main protagonist of today and takes a lot of inspiration from cinema and books. As a way into this thinking, Takmina explains that her painting, Endless Infatuations with Malcolm McDowell, which you can see over on our Instagram page, is a tribute towards her obsession over the portrait of the anti-hero. She says, I have a real antagonistic reaction to pitch-perfect moralism, as I think I see most things that are perfect and clean-cut as a nice anti-social package where the whole investment goes towards oneself. However, the anti-heroes are raw and they are rare. They have this weird self-conflicted duality going on. Similarly, like looking at the rock in Goya's painting and never quite seeing just the rock, but the triple-eyed devil, ongoing mutating faces, a depiction of the birth of something, and the whole mortality is in that rock. So I see the same rawness and wrongness in the rounded and enlarged facial features of Malcolm McDowell, who played a lead role in Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. And Malcolm's face is round and beautiful, like it's been sat on by the birth of Venus. Probably the longest distance studio chat I'll ever have. I chatted with Takmina about her early life, growing up in Russia and Uzbekistan, why her paintings often reference other people, her most recent show at Marlborough Gallery, accents, pubs, Marmite on Toast and small talk. So here's our chat. Thanks very much for listening. I was just thinking about what you were doing today and um, yeah, I'm just, I don't want it to sound corny or anything, but I'm really proud of you. Like I'm Oh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it on quarantine, seriously. And the fact that you just kept going and... <laughs> Thank you. you. Know, That's really kind. pretty booked up and, um, <laughs> you know, have your itinerary, I think. I don't know how many other people are doing it. I think I'm getting an impression everyone's just, like, going into Netflix, that canalia, pretty much. Yeah. Or maybe it's just me. Definitely. I feel like a five-year-old myself, like, I'm... They bring me food. So I was on self-quarantine as well. Oh, really? Oh, of course, yeah. Of course. I was just terrified to infect my... So I live with my grandma and my mum with them. And um, see, it's 6pm now. Yeah. And, yeah, I was just thinking whether my decision to abruptly leave London is, like, super uh, selfish and... No, I think it's sensible. I just couldn't imagine staying there in a rented flat. No. It, I, mean... I, I, I called Colin, um, Alan, and uh, consulted with him. And I think I was still pretty laid back about the whole thing. And, you know, Colin is a smart guy and he said, get your things packed and, you know, there any flights tonight get yeah. on that plane and leave, yeah. uh, like just fucking leave. Yeah. And I 
and I've done that and thought, well, I'm just going to self-quarantine. And I spent like, two weeks in the same room, um, luckily for me, big enough so I could stretch some canvases and start painting. But I was, you know, I've been fed and looked after mm. as a precious plant and felt like a five-year-old in my little totally unrealistic Garden of Eden. Um, it was kind of sickly towards the end of it, but mm. um, I have self—I have completed the self-quarantine and could finally, you know, leave the room and hug them and, um, yeah. That's nice. I think it it's is, a really sensible yeah. thing. I, I was, I'm, I'm so enjoying it in a way. Mm. I was just sitting with them the other day. And also because I don't get to spend so much time with them. I live in a foreign country on my mm. own and, you know, for loads of different reasons. But sometimes I feel like for none. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're just an artist and some days you feel like you make magic, basically. Yeah. And you go through a little manic kind of stage in the studio when things are just unraveling in front of you and other days most of the days you just feel well like you don't have a very good credit story with your bank <laughs> <laughs> now you're a year older um yeah. but um yeah being with them is really like catching up with what the life would be on a no normal circumstance yeah that's but, really uh, that's really nice yeah, but I left the room yesterday in like agony and I was like, I need to go and I just need to leave now because you're old people and I'm like <laughs> sitting here and, you know, putting on weight and gossiping and like yeah. playing card games. <laughs> it's easy to slip into that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, too comfortable. And I went and disrupted it a little bit and made a really well, bad painting and what I thought yesterday. And now I'm looking at it and thinking, well, there is something about it. And I like the fact that I was really pissed off and I was making it. Mm. Like trying to win over my crops of whatever I've achieved in London in the last eight years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, yeah, it's pathetic, really. <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> no, it is. I, I came back home with... Because I didn't have a great deal of time. They literally closed the borders the day after I flew here. And mm. I, you know, I had a suspicion. So I just packed, um, I have a Marlboro bag, like cigarettes, Marlboro <laughs> cigarettes. I don't know why someone gave it to me. And uh, like, and all that could fit in it was like three um, different types of felt because I paint on it, some brushes mm. and um, olive green by Michael Harding. Um, Wicked. Like, and a pair of socks. And that's all I really? took after eight years living in London. And I just <laughs> felt like, what if I'm never going to come back? You know, <laughs> Boris Johnson's going to die in hospital <laughs> and they're going to, you know, take my artist visa away from me because <laughs> I'm not even in England anymore mm, mm. Um, but yeah that's that's all I've earned in like nearly a decade it's, yeah that's fun it's funny isn't it yeah and it, it, have you ever played those um, kind of speculation games where 
they give you like a set of happenings and what you're going to do with it like your house is on fire what are the three things that you're going to take with <laughs> yeah. you yeah um and in what order yeah and i mean i was kind of i was self-congratulating myself for the selection of things of what is in your bag and at the same time feeling very uh i was like you're turning 26 like you need to get your act together <laughs> That's not all your possessions. Twenty twenty six is young. I could, yeah, I I'm, you know, proudly can say now that I'm not a materially obsessed person. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good thing. But then I'm also, you know, the fact that we all can sit at home is also a sign that we are uh, comfortable and we're privileged. Yeah, and 100%. I. Um, totally middle class that I can just rely on, you know, the savings and not worrying and just yeah. looking after myself and really taking this time as a retreat time. But um, mm. I see a lot of people losing their shit because they don't, you know, they're just not in the same situation. Yeah, and they leave their houses, and I'm totally. Like, I am on board with it. Yeah. You can't say stay at home for everyone. It's only for the, those, you know. Who can no, afford it. no, for sure. Um, so what have you been What have you been up to? Well, how are you, firstly, and how is it How is it going at home? Um, and, like, what have, you, yeah, what have you been up to now you're, um, now you're back in Russia? Um, well, I have, uh, as I said, I've been enjoying it a lot um maybe too much um ordered some paint um and brought some felt material from london um mm. and i've just been working on my uh triple eye devil series on felt so i'm painting on felt with oil at the moment and i'm having quite a lot of fun with it um, is this a new series of work you've started since being at home? Uh, or is it like a continuation? No, well, I've continued that. I've mm. started making these paintings, I think, last year after um, after a big show I had. Um, I wanted to shift into a different territory of working because I've just been... Um, yeah, I, I probably should explain a bit my, my, about my practice I used to paint on terracotta clay and I started um, doing that when I was at the RCA um, and it was a pretty physically investing process and I think I nearly killed myself doing it yeah. Um, so yeah I would make sometimes small paintings, but they will still weigh like at least 10 kilos. I don't really know pounds of conversion mm. of weights, but uh, or I made a piece for my degree show, which was a rounded circular painting, which yeah. had like maybe 15 bags of terracotta on it, plus like tons and tons of oil paint. Um, That's heavy. That was over 100 kilos for sure. Yeah. And uh, we called it 
uh, a full-grown man painting because it always required four guys. <laughs> Sorry for gender se- se- separation. Um, um, yeah, four guys to, you know, move it. Mm. And uh, um, I was really exhausted from doing that sort of work and the maybe my reason for going uh, for felt is pretty you know trivial but I was just tired like I broke my back and um, yeah. my lungs were so stuffed up with epoxy resin because I was also coating terracotta and resin mm. and I was very cautious of other people not getting poisoned from it so I was just like doing it out of my backyard or something or like I'll rent a car and drive somewhere so reclusive yeah. <laughs> and build up like a little um a gazebo tent for myself and I'll just do it there and the respirator like a breaking bad kind of bad episode um <laughs> so yeah I'm happily just painting away on my really thin and light see-through felt and I can move things around without anyone's assistance which feels so uh freeing mm. and new mm. <laughs> why why was that terracotta such um yeah why did you start using it was it uh, did it was it why was it a special material for you yeah that's a good question to trace back uh that was 2017 yeah yeah and we were entering into our second year of college mm. And I think I realized that I barely done any work in my first year. And, um, but I had maybe one of the best years of my life. Like it was so thrilling to be at college. Mm. Uh, I loved it. Mm. Um, I miss it sometimes for, uh, maybe, um, the reason of, knowing how your voice sounds in the room and learning of who you are and knowing how to stand your ground and accepting someone's criticism like and meeting great people um but that left no room for painting and i think that was a right uh rhythmical choice uh in a way to mm-hmm. make work um and in my second uh, but that kind of ambition to build up the surface and make it thick and make it inconvenient the opposite to sleek the opposite of perhaps the the today time that portrayed itself in this kind of capitalistic man in the suit picture Mm. uh and all that i grasped through perhaps conversations and seminars and being not happy with the setup of the college and it becoming this big um, Dyson Hoover kind of <laughs> machine rather than uh, an incubator for uh, making uh, distinguishing voices or someone who's going to anticipate that time, someone is going to be the antagonist of today's time. It was. It felt like they're just building this corporate person mm. and um the anger was building up there and i thought that the best material to demonstrate it would be 
something like terracotta, which is incredibly rich open clay um, on the visual level, but on conceptual level is totally um, unfriendly material. Like it's not easy to work with it. You know, it cracks, it, it disintegrates, it is not durable. It's very expensive to transport because A, it's heavy and B, it's super fragile. And there'll be very few people who'd want to deal with it, like in terms of an investment. Mm. And I'd always warn people who would be interested in buying work, for instance, or exhibiting it that, you know, it's not long lasting. But there is a certain effect in it that I would never achieve with just paint. Mm. So there is a price to pay, you know. Mm. And things, I think all the things in life that are beautiful and seductive and conflicted and they are temporary and they're very capricious uh, and not easy to be used, you know, in everyday life. So you get the whole shebang. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, And you talked about your work being like really heavy. And I I remember having, I remember moving some around actually um, yeah i was just gonna say i exploited um, your kindness on yeah. several occasions <laughs> i think you even started to uh so for anyone who's ever been in Battersea campus um we have two sides of the staircases on well two staircases on opposite sides of the of the building, of the building. and i think <laughs> they started using <laughs> The furthest one from him, but the one that wouldn't cross with my studio, because you were upstairs and I was downstairs. (laughs) And I think you were not the only one, and I don't judge you guys. (laughs) It's nice to have you around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason that I the reason that I bring it up was um, was was weight something that you thought about, or was it something that was important to you, or was it just a byproduct of of using that material at first it was a byproduct but then nothing is really just a consequence of your doing mm. of your own doing unless you are well unless you're a real idiot you know <laughs> just making works uh, to fabricate more mm. which hopefully is not the case for anyone who is actively and purposefully you know, owning a studio and putting the time in. I think all of it is, um, I don't like the word concept, um, but then I use it a lot, but I never associated with the beginning stage of making work as everyone, I guess. Um, It's more of a yearning for something that you don't have. That's where I start from. Mm. Um, and I kind of go on this circular detours of my, you know, emotional ratio and, um, you know, a, a lot of the times it feels like I'm an actor playing out this kind of Stanislavski method, uh, rather than a painter. Well, I rarely think about myself as a painter because then it puts so much, <clears throat> responsibility and weight and I like to come into you thinking that I don't know anything 
and that's pretty easy to do because I don't think that hardly of myself on like day-to-day basis I think particularly like daily life just or routine I don't know if you can use that word but it kind of impoverishes my own understanding of myself Mm. like I feel so humiliated to do the laundry or uh, and draw, hang the laundry, you know, mm. and I just think, oh, who am, I, who am I? And then I come to the studio and after, you know, a couple of hours of being there and just getting through the mud of things, then I catch myself thinking, oh, this is, this is who I am because it feels nice. Mm. Like it feels like I'm at home. Mm. Sorry, what was the question? The cons. The, why did I start working with? Oh no, I, 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 just. Um, I think I asked you was was weight the idea of weight or, I know you yes. don't like, to, like the word concept, but was yeah was weight important to you or was it just a byproduct? I think at first it was just yeah, um, me not knowing what it is, but intuitively going for something. Yeah. Until, I. <laughs> So there were several really poignant tutorials there at Royal College, and one of them was with Steve Clayton, and I think he just came into the studio and saw those works, um, and he pretty quickly named the concept for me, mm. which was, you know, um, an atavism in itself, like whatever I was doing in that, um, the material that I picked, I then stretched back to the, you know, geographical location of where I was born. Mm. I'm from Uzbekistan, Central Asia, and pretty much 95% of the architecture there is built out of this red clay. It's made out of, <coughs> sorry, it's made out of terracotta. And... Um, and I grew up there and I sewed up that historical code, oh. sorry, aesthetic code in me. And though I left when I was a kid, I was eight years old when we moved to Russia, um, I must have suppressed something in me, um, my culture or uh, just the visual kind of library of images and because that had to be quickly forgotten and replaced for something totally different which is you know this big marble stalinist buildings and grayish grayish kind of big city and people who never smile (laughs) even if they want to like they can't Mm. um and it all started coming back together and symbolizing itself in, in terracotta. And then I liked the idea of it being so heavy because uh, at the time <clears throat> I realized that I was struggling a lot with um, just staying in the country. You know, I it was wonderful to be at college and to be a student of Royal College of Art and having friends and making paintings. and. Yeah, living in Clapham. I love Clapham. I don't know why people don't like it. Like, what's wrong with it? <laughs> um, and, yeah. And it w- it all felt like a 
an extended welcome. Uh, that soon is going to be disrupted by the uh, border border agency. Mm. And it was sort of like always there, the fear of going back home. Mm, and I didn't know at the time the ways to legalize myself <laughs> in the UK. Um, so um, I just thought I'm going to make the most inconvenient to be transported thing and gonna fucking nail my testicles on it and not leave because yeah. it's going to be so heavy. Um, but I don't think I named it actively to anyone when they asked me what my work was about. Mm. I'm, I think I'm only talking about it now. It's over and I am, yeah, I'm legally in the UK. I don't know how many times did I say that? <laughs> am, I, am I afraid of someone haunting me? Um, I have a art. I have an artist visa mm. for the next five years to reside there, mm. unless it's been compromised by coronavirus. Um, and yeah, I feel like give me another twenty years, I might become a dame. Okay. <laughs> What um what bred the fear? Do you think of <coughs> going back home? Were you making artwork when you were younger, um, in Uzbekistan and, and and Russia? Were you making like were you able to make to the same? <coughs> I don't know. Did you have the same productivity? And how how was it? And kind of why did why would you fear going back? Uh, no, I wasn't making work when I was a kid or a teenager. Um, I was always, I was a weird and solemn kid. Like, I never actively uh, took up a, a pen and just started making lines and then got obsessed with it. Like, I always wanted that story to be about me, but I never owned it. Like, I didn't have much of an interest to draw or paint. But I remember being uh, left alone at home. Um, I mean, there were other people in the house, but I like to spend time on my own mm. on the carpet. And there are these... Um, um, Central Asian carpet patterns, which I think are coming from Buhara, the town where I was born, which is just over two and a half thousand years old. So it is quite rich with history and different invasions and religion uh, fluctuations and all sorts of things. And it kind of all symbolizes within the carpet. So with the rise of Islam, they had to abandon any recognizable imagery. And before that, carpets were pretty storytelling. So they um, collected all sorts of battles and stories of, you know, gathering and hunting and, you know, killing and dying and conquering things. Pretty much any other uh, epic uh, 
story scenario. Um, and yeah, when Islam came into power, they couldn't really continue illustrating imageries because it was competing with God or whatever. And um, they had to abbreviate images into pretty graphic shapes, which would still trace back what it meant before, like deer's, how do you call them, horns? Mm -hmm. They grew into this kind of shape and pattern and it was all repetitive. And I was left there maybe when I was two or three and I just spent hours staring into the carpet and basically creating my own plays and battle scenes and I could see patterns moving, mutating into shapes and forms. I'd give them names and push them around. But it was all very unproductive because I wasn't sort of capturing that moment on a piece of paper. But I remember doing it a lot. Mm. And um, I had a couple of um, trials of my own to make work without even knowing them was making it like I would cut loads of snowflakes when I was, that was when I was much, much later on, we already moved to Moscow and we moved into this uh, really grim apartment and I didn't really want to be there, but um, no one consulted me on whether I'd like it or not. My parents are pretty like Soviet people can't blame them, they were born in the 50s in um, USSR, so, you know, um, <laughs> the whole stiff upper lip is like a 10% of the strictness and kind of, um, if you're a kid, you're just not allowed to ask questions, so you just move wherever you are taken. And I assimilated that little corner in the room uh, I pushed the cupboard and bed to kind of close up the corner of the room, which was probably like 45 centimetre length, mm -hmm. uh, width and length. And I set like a little box on it, which became like my office table. And I had a pair of scissors and loads of tissue paper, and I would just cut up snowflakes. <laughs> and, um, yeah... And I claimed my territory to be only mine. Mm. And I had that weird kind of uh, imaginary thought that people would try to invade into my space. And the smaller it is, the less sort of visible it is. I'm almost, you know, my power is within my invisibility and I can control <laughs> my family. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, especially when I was a teenager, I was thinking, oh, they're so obsessed with, you know, food and talking about food and nesting and being this nuclear family and uh, being totally apolitical and so uninteresting. And I am so interesting because I'm reading <laughs> Nietzsche and Cortázar <laughs> and I'm making this weird snow in my corner. Um, so I don't know if you can call it making art, but I think... This was the most authentic, insane thing that I've ever done in my life. Like everything <laughs> after that was too pre-constructed and mm. self-assured. Um, but 
now I proudly call myself a painter. So maybe I'm not a painter at all anymore. Maybe <laughs> I need to. I, I, I'm now in the same apartment that I was just describing you. Um, That's interesting. Are you yeah, making, are you making work in the same space? Me. Like where you're making work now, is it the same space that you were back then? Yeah, but I, I, I now occupy the whole apartment. <laughs> like I, I thought I deserve it now. I'm an adult, <laughs> <laughs> and they owe me something because they didn't see me like three hundred days a year. Um, so they'll be glad to <laughs> be pushed back. And now I occupy two rooms. I'm really awful, and I took the best spaces because I need light. You know how we are always so like it's all about me. Yeah. I need fresh air, natural light, <laughs> big square meters, <laughs> and unconditional love. Mm. Mm. Um, so when when it came the decision to move to the UK, what how old were you when you when you decided um, that you'd want to yeah you want to move here and, and also study here too? What was informing those decisions? If you can remember, it's a long time ago. Yeah, it is. It is. It. <laughs> um. Did you come for your? Did you come over for foundation? I don't know what I came for mm. there. To be honest, I was just trying to. Mm. I didn't like school mm. at all. And I pretty much um, swallowed up any memories connected with it. I remember I've changed quite a few schools in Moscow. You're like eight. Eight different um, schools, wow. Yeah, in 10 years. And, was that because uh, it was a problem socially or was it a problem that you found with you know the educational side of things? Uh Definitely the first one. Mm. Um, like, um, I found it difficult to, you know, being treated similarly with the rest of Caucasian kids. And mm. Russia is a very kind of reclusive, monocultural society. It is, well, it's not particularly getting better, but there are more people coming in. And on the one hand, can't really blame the people because they had like 74 years of cultural diet where they were not exposed to a variety. Uh, they were living behind their iron shield. And But then again, it all collapsed in 1989 and people have still not become more acceptance towards the other. Uh, Maybe even worse now because I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I think I do, but then it would take up perhaps the whole day talking about it and <laughs> yeah. we don't want to focus on it. Just as a side mm. note, our president is going to extend his presidentship <laughs> towards infinity on the 31st of April and 
Um, yeah, the that. plans all went tits up because of Corona, and uh, he keeps extending the deadline whilst he's sort of self-isolating himself uh, very thoroughly on a private island. <laughs> so, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know about it. He's trying to change constitution. So. Yeah, I've I've read about it actually. So, and um, and I think when you have a very single leadership for uh, the last twenty years, it does something to people's minds, and they kind of give up on the whole democracy thing, mm. or even an idea of trying towards it. And um, of course, it mirrors back on them you know, acceptance towards different uh, race and gender equality and all those things that we are so, in a way, comfortable with and used to in London, or say, mm. we, the middle classes in London. Mm. Uh, that doesn't exist here to that same extent. But when I was going to school, uh, it was difficult for me to, yeah, navigate through it and I'm not a fighter in that way. Like, I'm ready for a good, productive, critical, intellectually stimulating fight in a place where I am first of all treated for my, well, say, profession or something that I mm. associate myself with, but certainly not for the way I look or uh, where my name is coming from, whether it's Muslim or not. Mm. And I don't want to say I gave up because I, I wasn't born here. Like, I don't. Oh, oh, anything to the Russian uh, folklore, mm. and I escaped pretty much. I made a decision to come to the UK very abruptly. Mm. I think within two weeks of thinking, I applied for visa, and I was very soon in London in a black cab <laughs> that was so expensive, but <laughs> I totally didn't know how much was a hundred quid, and I paid a hundred quid for my journey from Heathrow <laughs> Terminal Five to um, Clapham Common. Oh my word! That is. A, and that is a I word. left a tenner as a tip, and Jeez. my cab driver was called Norman, and he was the sweetest, <laughs> nicest guy, um, and that was my first sort of welcome to London, and. Um, yeah, and I, well, I want to say I loved it ever since, but yeah. uh, it was a pretty bumpy road, uh, and things changed, and I moved, and I went to different colleges, mm. but it was a very interesting and reaching experience. I definitely don't regret about it, like it changed my life. Mm. Mm. In what in what ways would you say it's changed it's changed you? Well, you know when you immigrate to a different country and you adopt a new language, I think there is something that happens to your body, like physically, mm. and your appearance changes and your mimicry adopts to whatever language you speak. Um, you know, outside of uh, kind of learning it grammatically, you also 
adopt a certain being, like you mimic how those other people you never met before live their lives. And uh, you don't become a hypocrite necessarily. Like a lot of people ask me, why do you have this weird kind of British accent? Like, you don't really need to talk like this. And I'm trying <laughs> to tell them, yes, I do, because it's the accent is like 50% of a new language you just mm. learned. Mm. You know, because you don't want me to sound like a Russian woman. <laughs> Like, no one would be my friend if I just go into the room and say hello. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it takes a lot of time and um, um, observation. Um, but then um, your preferences, it, even in food, shift. Like, mm. I, I still didn't grow towards liking Marmite on toast. Like, I still don't get it. It tastes like salty sailor spit on a toast <laughs> how do you guys do that or like some chippy fingers or chippy sandwich like too much carbohydrate for me <laughs> but things like i always loved the pub and um, um a pint of guinness and yeah. yeah i like i grew to like small talk at first i thought English people are just a bunch of weirdos who <laughs> talk about nothing but themselves. And I see a special, like, wizard talent within that. Like, mm. how can you, like, just stretch the conversation to, you know, millennium without even mentioning your name or <laughs> where you're from or your age or anything that can identify who you are and possibly demonstrate your weaknesses to the, mm. to the other person? And, like, I'm still struggling to do this, but I'm fascinated by it. And I love the parks and the dogs and how well they were treated there. Mm. Um, the accent, I think the humour completely won me over. Um, and also, I came during the Summer of Olympic Games, oh, 2012. Oh, well, so yeah, that was, a, that was a great year to be in London. That was such a good year, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Perfect timing. Yeah, it's lovely. And, of course, it, like... London sold itself to me. Mm. And um, when you arrived to London on July of 2012, mm. and you see David Beckham, <laughs> like, carrying a torch down Peckham. Hook, line, and, and sinker. <laughs> and you're 18. Yeah. My God, life is good. Yeah, at any age, I think, seeing that, life's, life's pretty good. But especially when you're 18, because that same year I finished school. Yeah. Like, I was going through my stuff the other day, because I'm uh, clearing out my mom's flat while I'm here. Mm. And uh, I stumbled across that um, emblem that, you know, do you guys have it when you graduate from school? Like a red emblem or golden or whatever, and it's written like, happy graduation 2012. That might we, be, I, I didn't, it might be um, a more traditional way of doing things, but when I graduated, I well, they were yeah. they were happy to see us all get out the door quick, I think. We didn't really get much. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's because you went to school in Kent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> K K Kentian prince, please. <laughs> 
Well, I guess we should move move towards um, work that you're making kind of at the moment um, and kind of what, what what's informing that. Um, you mentioned a bit at the beginning, um, but I, I remember your last show um, at Marlborough, Eyebrows with Teeth. Um, and it, actually, and it, I guess it might be a, a, a good way in, when, into the recent work if you talk a bit about that show um, at Marlborough Fine Art. Um, and introduce people yeah. who may not have had the chance to to get to see it to that show. Um, so when we graduated from Royal College, um, I was given that prize um, called Barry Beston Artist Trust Award, which gave me a year of a studio, some money, um, all towards the preparation of solo show at. Marlborough Fine Art, now Marlborough Gallery, they've changed the name. Oh, okay. And that was a pretty interesting year for me because, you know, you leave college and everything suddenly collapses <laughs> on you and changes and uh, you're on your own now. Well, but also exciting because uh, I was getting ready for my first solo show. Um, uh, the name of the show derives from um, Phil Gustin's documentary "Life Lived." Um, yeah, so it's, it's I don't know if you remember that. that moment. He was walking around with his wife, Musa, and a friend, and around New York, and watching those old red brick buildings. Um, and he said and that had like windows and arches above them and he said oh they look like eyebrows eyebrows with teeth is what they are mm. and like i watched that film probably as you did um multiple times and mm. that phrase stuck with me mm. but also for the reason that um um I have, like, probably, I wouldn't lie if I say I have quite distinguishing uh, eyebrows. Like, they're pretty weird and um, thick and very straight up. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah. Some people, like, told me that used to intimidate them, like, browsing down the corridor of the RCA with my eyebrows. <laughs> I totally didn't hope for that impression, but then I was kind of even flattered. I, but then, mm. yeah, I thought um, it is kind of about me and um, I don't really have a story for my first show and mm. it would be too um, grandiose if mm. I came up with some kind of um, press release bullshit yeah. and I'll just call it um something that would describe me very well mm. for people in the crowded room who have never seen me before to look at me and think oh he's an artist <laughs> yeah well maybe it's a good show. opportunity then to talk about kind of titles because obviously the title of that show referenced guston and then often your titles um of your work they reference like people whether it's the painters directors novelists um. Yeah, um, those are good questions. You see, you're directing me towards something because I keep 
I keep sliding off to anything else but my work. Uh, sorry. I'll no, it's fine. Better. It's fine. I understand. I understand. It's hard. Um, yeah, I basically, I think that the best kind of work is, for me at least, is when I make it for someone. Yeah. I feel um, too lost and self-indulged if I just, you know, make it for something abstract or... I dedicate it to a thing or a style. I need to dedicate it to a person. And um, hopefully someone's still alive, then it would feel more kind of tickling and exciting and nerve-wracking because mm. there's always a chance they can just suddenly walk in and see a show. Mm. Um, and I dedicated one of the paintings, which was... Uh, one of the main works in the show, um, I dedicated the work to Malcolm McDowell. Um, yeah, endless infatuations. He played in the Clockwork Orange, mm. Stanley Kubrick's film. Mm. And I absolutely obsessed, I am obsessed with his face because it's very rounded <laughs> and he has very enlarged features mm. and like the birth of Venus set on Malcolm McDowell's face, you yeah. know. And um, I painted that work with like big volumes of oil paint and I put extra details on the eyes, sort mm. of seeping, bulging eyes and they're yeah. very sky blue and they're triple eyes well and they have a very uh, intense eye contact with the viewer as they're staring at you, mm. a bit of a monk um trick yeah. and um it was also painted on plaster it was very heavy and voluptuous or uh, another work i dedicated to lars von trier because yeah. uh, why not uh, and it was called delirium tremens of lars von trier mm. um he's my favorite director and i'm really worried about his state of health because He's like a raging alcoholic with, you know, 40 year drinking um, experience. Mm. And uh, he's, yeah, and he's remarkable. I think his latest film is just absolutely amazing. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't actually. Oh, watch it. What's um, the title of it? It's no. called The House of Jack Built. And stars Matt Dillon, who's also a painter, actually. Oh, really? Uh, but that's beside a point. The film mm. is about so-called serial killer. But actually, when I was watching that film, I was again in Moscow. Like, everything brings me back to this fucking town. Yeah. And I was here on, like, an extended period of time and... I couldn't renew my visa um, to go back to London. I wasn't sure if I got it or not. Um, everything was holding off threshold. And I went to the cinema with my mum one day. And I couldn't paint at the time because I just didn't have materials and space. Everything was based on like this temporality. And we just sat in this cinema. And I remember watching it and every chapter that was dedicated to Jack and his killings of women um, was weirdly for me 
haunting me back to the idea of being in the studio. I suddenly could see myself within the wrongdoings of his, his immoral kind of status, his kind of tricksters appearance and him being very unlikable person, but yet a totally appropriate artist in a sense, because he just didn't, Mm -hmm. he lacked any morals and he was sloppy and he was a maniac and he was obsessive. Mm -hmm. And he was also very intricate and grandiose and imaginative in the way that he kills people and in the way that he preserves their bodies. And he was kind of a sculptor in a way. And, um, yeah, maybe I was going completely mental that I started associating myself with the main protagonist, but then Mm -hmm. I came back to London and made that painting that was dedicated to Lars and that was also in the show. Mm -hmm. And it had some references to Guston's KKKs and to some, you know, abandoned sort of um, buildings from my hometown again. And it all was you know, again, made on really thick layers of red clay and coated with even more Dharma varnish and everything was sickly, sticky and luscious, but at the same time kind of on the verge of, like, throwing up. I don't know. There was a lot of pink in it and a lot of um, colours that um, might seem beautiful or quite seductive but at the same time you get a bit too much of it to the point where you don't really want it and i think that i was kind of after it Mm. Mm. um and the main piece in the show we're still talking about marble show yeah um i'm so inconsistent it was the um big mattress um i was thinking about that for a long time um and just as jack from the film i was moving to a new house when i came back to london and i remember seeing this mattress lying around in rain on a like a dumb asphalt near my new house which was in grim woolwich and I kept looking at it, this mattress outside my window. You could still see it. And day after day after day, I was like, I'm going to hunt it down and I'm going to cut it wide open right through the root cage and take it out and fucking wrap that with terracotta and hang it by the wires, like this S&M kind of stainless steel things under a massive army Welsh parachute. And it's going to be at Marlborough Gallery and like I was thinking about it for weeks and it was super rainy that month and it was all like it was just getting more disgusting and dirty and you know I don't know who slept on it and why the person threw it away in the first place did it like maybe had bed bugs so when the level of my disgust towards the mattress reached, then, of course, at midnight, um, and being slightly tipsy, coming back from somewhere, high heels and everything, and beautiful long silk coat I was wearing then, and I thought that that was the right moment to drag the mattress back to my apartment. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, there was a reason my landlady didn't like me. Like, um, on the one hand, she thought that I was totally familiar, like um, someone who likes to party and someone who likes to dress up and makeup. And she was very conventional in her judgment of people. But on the other hand, I would drag weird shit. <laughs> It's the place that I lived. Um, so, yeah, and then I did everything according to my uh, mental plan, and I covered each wrap, uh, each um, string of the mattress spring. Is that what you call it? Each spring, mm. I wrapped it in terracotta, and there were 388 of them, and it took me seven months, eight hours of work wow. every day. I did it four days a week because I had to make other paintings wow as well mm. and it felt like a full-time job um but i have finished it and we hanging up up in the air under the welsh Army parachute mm. dramatic lighting boom you know yeah it was really exciting because no one knew whether it was health and safety proof mm. and they were like we can't let the public to come in because we're not 100% sure. And I said, I basically, I didn't even say anything. I just stood up from the um, step ladder or whatever was on at the time. And I went down and lied underneath the mattress. And I said, well, I'm not afraid to do that, even if it flashed me right now, because we need to open the doors in a couple of hours. And, you know, we're not putting it down because it looks too good. Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, are you working towards anything at the moment? Um, uh, yes, so I'm making these triple-eyed devil paintings mm. that are based on... Um, partially, they're based on this uh, Russian odyssey that I read last year, uh, which is called Moscow to the End of the Line. Is by Benedict Yerofeev. Um, it's a novel about um, Vinya, the main protagonist, who travels down um, the train line uh, towards this utopian, self-proclaimed heaven that he calls Pitushki. It's a real town in uh, near Moscow, mm. and the book was written in 70s and it was pretty grim time for any creatives any people really like uh, empty shelves <laughs> a major kind of famine of cultural um differences and just bleak times and a lot of people were coping with it with like pretty severely charged spirits um and then it was productively drinking as he was uh, getting through each station. Uh, and he was going to meet the beautiful woman um, with uh, with a plait uh, so long it could reach her ass and with eyes wide as vodka. And he also had a son who could only say one letter and he was bringing some sweeties for him that was sort of melting in his leather uh, bag and he was very drunk and um, and he never arrived home. He never arrived to see his 
child and his wife because um, he was he was killed by the demons. It's a great book. I feel mm. like I'm really... Uh, no, we'll, we'll put it in the notes for the podcast because I'm sure people yeah, would like to... I'm not really selling it. But um, <laughs> he was um, stabbed in the throat uh, by one of the angels, actually, that turned out to be this kind of haunting, probably consciousness demon of his. And uh, I don't know, it was all very familiar for me. I felt like mm. I could really identify with him in a lot of ways and my um, agonizing question of where home is, uh, my impossibility of ever reaching it. As I I think I, I came to terms that I would forever be foreign to pretty much everywhere mm. where I am. Um, and... <clears throat> Yeah, um, I feel like um, the choice of colours um, and the shapes that are appearing on felt are very uh, bleak, uh, gloomy, weird. Like the, there is a paranoid vision within it. There mm -hmm. is a weird kind of duality. There's a lot of staring, empty eyes, like sort of... Mm leached with any emotion or thought eyes like mm. after heavy 74 year drinking and um, um, sometimes I feel like I'm getting somewhere with them and other times it feels too naive and illustrative because mm. my paintings became figurative again and they weren't for a long time um, mm. yeah yeah yeah, well, that, they sound great. I, I look forward to seeing them as and when. Yeah, I'm going to send you some pictures from my uh, quarantine. Yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. Maybe when the podcast goes out. They might be finished by then, so we can um, I can put them up on Instagram or something so people can um, have a reference while they're listening, which would be nice. Yeah. Um, well, we're actually nearing the end of our chat. Um, and you may know that at the end of um, at the end of these chats, I, I have that I ask our guests the same few questions at the end. Um, so maybe you're prepared, maybe you're not. <laughs> um, the, uh, the first question, the first question I ask is, um, if you could swap seats with me, and you could um, visit anyone in history, living or dead, and go to their studio or wherever, wherever. Um, what would you want? Well, who would it be, firstly, and um, what would you like to ask them? Um, I would like to meet with Mike Lee, and my question would be: um, This is for real, Mike Lee lovers here. Um, <laughs> my question would be: Was Johnny from film Naked? Was he assaulted by his father? Because that would explain a lot to me. I don't know if you've seen that film. It's absolutely stunning. What, what um, was it called again, did you say? Pardon? What, what did you say it was called again? Naked. Naked. Uh, by Mike Lee. Okay. And it stars David Thewlis in it. Okay. Who also played one of the professors in Harry Potter, but <laughs> I think his main role was in that film. 
It's a weird question to ask, you know, but... Um, um, yeah. Yeah. I asked that. That's good. Oh, I hate my answer, but I just answered very... Um, this this been, you know, really bothering me for a long time, <laughs> because if you watch the film, that would explain a lot, because okay. he is so conflicted and so angsty and angry, and yet he has everything. Like, he's charismatic, he's young, everyone loves him, but then he is eternally alone, mm. and he's so dark sometimes and heavy on himself and he runs away from any opportunity sort of limping away from his own trivial happiness that i would just like to know mm. and there are certain hints about his dark childhood mm. so if i had could have a coffee or probably yeah. tea with my tea i would ask him that Wicked. well i'm sure you'd be allowed that we'll allow you that um the second thank you the... thank you kirstie <laughs> No problem. Well, um, is it my luxury object? Yeah, is that the second yeah, one? Yeah, your luxury object can be a cup of tea. <laughs> no, that's your luxury object. <laughs> well, this, uh, okay. So the second, the second question I ask, I ask all our guests is: Has there been um, a piece of advice that you've been given um, ever that has kind of stuck with you, or a piece of advice that you? like to remember or recall? Mm, piece of advice. <laughs> or even a piece of advice that you would give, maybe. I don't want to give any advice. That's really. fine. That's fine. Um, But I remember the one that really stayed with me. Um, when everything goes crashing down, the best thing that you or humanity can do is to perform a tribal dance. And it really stayed with me. Yeah. And I think that's what we should all be doing now. It's a beautiful time. Mm. It's the, uh, I guess it's it's weirdly the time that I've always been dreaming of. Mm. And when the whole pandemic thing broke, I, I was kind of, I don't want to sound like a psychopath, but I was thinking this is a time for everyone to reevaluate what they've been doing and who they are. And now they've given no choice, but within that is their greatest freedom to lead, lead the life that they always wanted, even if it is preconstructed within the limitations of their room, or three months' time, four months' time, how long is going to take us. But um, there is no fear and no guilt in performing that dance. Mm. Mm. And it's kind of, um, yeah. If you, I'm going to probably prematurely answer your question about the recommendations about uh, of books or yeah. uh, films. Um, one of them, I'll probably say, Melancholia by Lars von Trier. Um, I think the end of it is pretty 
Orient. Um, she just builds a tent, a house um, for this little boy. Uh, and he, just to earn him a little bit of time and that space of naive kind of childlike freedom in believing that it's gonna save them from the end. Mm. But inevitably, we're gonna be swallowed up, but maybe we deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was gonna be a positive ending. <laughs> I think it's very positive. <laughs> it makes me, makes my blood boil. I'm just so thrilled I'm gonna, you know, get on with my life with this extra boost now. Mm. Because things just felt too stagnated, you know. Yeah. And I think we are sometimes uh, look too similar to those mice in Mice Utopia that was created by the scientist John Calhoun. Do you know that experiment? Um, remind me of it. I might not know the name, but I might know the. the it's called Behavioral Sync, and John Calhoun basically created a utopia for mice um and it was like a big live human-sized container mm -hmm. um that could accommodate over three thousand mice in it and wow. um, the mice that were put in it they were eliminated of any viruses or uh diseases and they were given all the food and water and energy supplies they needed um all they had to do is just to live in it but they were all the kind of natural uh struggles and rules of selection were stripped down and they lived in pretty artificial existence of absolute laziness and happiness in a way mm. um and the sooner they the sooner they started breeding and multiplying but as more of them appeared they started separating the space and building hierarchies within it and abusing each other male mm. species got pretty abusive female species stopped breeding because they were under so much stress and torture mm. um similar experiment was put on rats and female rats started eating their babies just out Jeez. of pure stress and yeah it was like really bizarre and graphic mm. And then the last stage of the experiment was the the new generation that was born within all that chaos and um, you know um, hierarchical torture, and they were called the beautiful ones because they didn't want to uh, get involved with any territorial fights or mm. breeding. They lacked any sexual urges and they were just really obsessed with grooming and looking at themselves and being super isolated. Oh, and nice. I often feel like we might have entered into that <laughs> group <laughs> with all the, uh, you know, self-acceptance and healing mm. and yeah. raising of consciousness, which is all fine, and I'm also doing it, but I, I sometimes feel like it's all too under magnified glass with all the Instagram filters and our obsessive nature of ourselves and our purpose. Mm. And life is just showing us that maybe we are purposeless um, because we've just been, you know, tortured down in our houses by the most stupid thing that lives on this planet. Mm. Like, 
which is virus. Yeah, yeah. Pretty humiliating, right? There's something to learn from it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. In other positive notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but an important one, but an important one. Um, well, thank you so much for um, giving me your time. And this is definitely the longest distance studio visit I've ever done. God, I'm flattered. <laughs> so thanks for giving me your time. Um, it's thank been, you. Yeah, it's no, thank you for um, um, staying patient with me. And um, <laughs> I'm really glad that we've recorded it today, finally. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. I had to run a few thousand miles away from you <laughs> to, <laughs> to find and arrange a studio visit. But... <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm happy we managed to. Um, hope that you will, you know, stay indoors and safe. Yeah, you too. Yeah, Make you work too. and stay sane. Yeah, yeah, that goes for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right, mate, thank you. Thank you. Speak to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Well, thank you very much for listening. Please find more information about what was discussed in the podcast in the notes section. And if you like what you heard and would like to keep up to date with new episodes, um, then please subscribe or follow us depending on which listening platform you use. And head over to our Instagram page, at to the studio, which we regularly update with posts about each guest we have and all other goings on as well. To the studio is produced by the audio wizard, an all-round great guy that is Theo Bird and I would thoroughly recommend getting in touch with him for all your audio needs. On Instagram, he is birdperson. Bird is spelt B-Y-R-D, person. Also, if you can spare a moment to leave us a lovely review, and that would help us out a lot and it allows us to reach a few more ears than we are currently. And lastly, if you've got any suggestions or opinions you wish to share with us, then please feel free to do so on any of our social media platforms or send us over an email. Our details are again in um, the notes section uh, of each episode of the podcast. Well, thanks very much again for listening and we'll see you next time.